I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi everyone, and welcome to the virtual London Review Bookshop for this conversation between me, Juliet Jakes, and uh, my good friend and one of my favourite writers, Owen Hathley. Lots of you will know Owen, I'm sure. He's uh, an astonishingly uh, prolific writer. Um, Books include Militant Modernism, uh, Uncommon People, a book about the band Pulp, uh, A Guide to the New Ruins of Great Britain, uh, A New Kind of Bleak, um, The Chaplin Machine, The Ministry of Nostalgia, Trans-Europe Express, Landscapes of Communism, uh, The Adventures of Owen Hathley in the Post-Soviet Space. I'm sure that's not all of them, uh, but the new one is an anthology anthology of his work, uh, Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances. Which one did I forget, Owen? Uh, Oh, God, which did you forget? There's a small book I published from a Russian publisher, and it was only print on demand, so it's totally fine. Nobody's read it (laughs) in uh, in either language. Okay, and none of that. Actually, no, it's popular in Belarus. They love it in Minsk. <laughs> oh, I bet they do. Um, so we're we're here to talk about your um, your new book, uh, "Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances," which is uh, an anthology of your writing between about two thousand and five um, and twenty nineteen. I mean, I'll ask the first question, which is uh, why that title? What does it mean? Uh, so it comes from one of the sort of several managers of the Who, a group who I don't particularly like, apart from their first, the kind of first few singles before Roger Daltrey starts doing that awful kind of caterwauling that all English rock singers started doing at a certain point. And the, 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 it's from a guy called Pete Meaden, who was one of their early managers. And he was asked in the 70s when, when, when Mod had kind of died um, before, it, before it was revived, and what it actually was, and he came up with this as a definition. He said, you know, modernism, model living is about clean living under difficult circumstances. And I think that's a really interesting way of defining a particular kind of modernism that has, that has always interested me. Um, and it's the thing that kind of links the, so I suppose the two bits of two kinds of things that, that one can broadly describe as modernism together which otherwise are quite unlike each other which is the sort of modern movement tradition and design from sort of Bauhaus and constructivism onwards and the other thing being pop music and pop culture I guess roughly from you know from jazz in the 1920s onwards and these these two things you know are, are, are both about this kind of idea of sort of reforming or changing life rather than just simply you know doing interesting things in galleries or what have you and and it kind of it also does a thing which it was it's sort of an implicit riposte for me to a particular idea of what modernism is, which came in in the 1990s with things like John Carey's book, The Intellectuals and the Masses, which is that, you know, that modernism is a sort of trick played on the reader, that, you know, that, 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 that all of the kind of formal innovation is really all about making it hard to read and making it possible that only the cognoscenti can read it. And obviously, I think this is bullshit. And one of the way, places you can most see it's bullshit is in those two things, is in kind of pop culture and in design work. They were, and you know, the, the, the sort of, in the first instance, explicitly aimed at ordinary people, and the second instance, overwhelmingly made by ordinary people rather than by a small minority of intellectuals. 
that's that's what's going on there. Yeah, and I mean, it sort of seems to me that this this really is a book about popular modernism, and maybe you could talk a bit about the blog culture that your writing sort of emerge out of. There's not much of your uh, writing from the blogs in this book, but there is some, and the introduction puts a lot of your writing career into into that context of this blog culture. So maybe you could talk a bit about the importance of, of this sort of concept of popular modernism. Uh, to the blogging sphere that that you you spent your early to sort of mid twenties working within. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think a lot of I mean, this is a huge generalisation because there are all sorts of people doing all sorts of blogs. Um, yeah. Even in the small group that we were in, there was, you know, I guess a sort of divide between different factions. Um, you know, a sort of people that posted on I Love Music and people that posted on Dissensus. And, I posted on both, so I had very divided loyalties, although overwhelmingly on the dissenter side, obviously. I think a lot of it was about a sort of feeling that, I guess, the kind of John Kerry type people had won. You know, that the kind of idea that you could do something like Ghost by Japan or that you could build, you know, experimental social housing for, for, for ordinary people, that both of these things were considered not just impossible, not just even that they were kind of inherently elitist and bad and evil, but also that they never had happened. And that to think that they had happened was in some way a kind of um, an example of nostalgia and to criticise the kind of culture of the 2000s, which I think we can now all agree was absolutely terrible, um, was in some way being, you know, sort of sort of made you um, nostalgic and wrongheaded and so on. And I suppose we were all sort of trying to various different ways and various different subjects, trying to kind of, you know, have some sort of fidelity, to use the word Darren Ambrose uses about Mark Fisher, to to those ideas. And sort of claim, point out that they did happen, that they were real, <laughs> um, and that it would be nice to do it. Um, and I think that's that, that's the thing that's sort of the, the, the continuity. And the other thing that, that, you know, that was going on in all of that, which I think is is less attractive, um, and a thing that was very much a kind of shape of things to come um, was that everyone that had a blog was an absolutely, well, not everyone. I can imagine some people going like, not me, but most everyone was an absolutely inveterate self-promoter and self-brander. Like, you know, everybody on it, like long before this became kind of ubiquitous on, on, on you know, the kind of later social networks like Instagram and Twitter and so forth, everyone on there had an incredibly highly curated personal brand which in many ways, I suppose, stands you in quite good stead for journalism, you know, and it kind of, um, but it, 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 I suppose, you know, it's not so good for developing ideas in, in any great depth. Um, but it was, you know, it was basically, the, the, the crucial thing was just that it felt like a cultural wasteland at that point. And finding all of that stuff, which I found very much from outside. I didn't know any of those people at the time. It was incredibly exciting because if you'd kind of like grown up thinking that pop culture was incredibly important and then everyone told you that it wasn't, um, usually the people writing about pop culture um, told you that it wasn't in the Observer Music Monthly or whatever. Um, and you then found all these people that still, <laughs> you know, that still fervently believed. It was very, very um, exciting and also just sort of reassuring. It made you feel like you weren't totally and utterly alone. Does that answer the question? Yeah. Okay, good. I think it does, <laughs> yeah. No, no, that's very nice. And I'm going to ask you something that, that I'm really interested in, having had quite a complex relationship with writing about uh, myself, writing autobiographically and writing cultural criticism, trying to find some kind of... Um, way of maybe marrying those two things you know you you do not do a lot of um directly autobiographical writing although you know your personality and your interests uh come across very strongly and you know maybe uh what you were just saying about sort of developing a personal brand like you know uh whether that's done intentionally or not that does come across very strongly in in all of your work i think um but this book opens with a quite directly autobiographical uh, piece of writing where you talk about um, your childhood growing up around um, in Hampshire on the south coast in Southampton and elsewhere um, about your mother and her politics and her relationship to um, the housing system and the benefit system and you know your your interest in sort of you know music and the effects of 
going to university and relationships on your life and so forth in a way that I haven't really seen you do that much elsewhere. So I'd like to ask you like how it felt to write in that mode and like why you chose to introduce the book and to sort of pepper the book with uh, with these autobiographical um, segments. Mm, sure. I remember a couple of years ago, um, my mum saying that that she thought that I never wrote about myself and my writing was quite unemotional. And I found this very strange because I thought it did. Like I once got when I was a blogger, like uh, an anonymous email headed Hatherley Watch, which said something along the lines of like, yes, yes, we know you grew up on a council estate in Southampton and your parents are a militant. We're watching you. <laughs> and I thought I, I, I have my my, uh, my my theories on who sent that, but anyway. Um, so even then, that was not like two thousand and eight. Like, even then, like um, that shtick was pretty obvious. And I, I um, most of my books, particularly the ones on architecture, not so much um, the ones that are not, uh, or at least two of the ones that are not. So not really in um, Chaplin Machine, which was came from my brief attempt to be an academic. And the Ministry of Nostalgia, which is sort of vaguely historical. The others are all absolutely full of autobiography. And they're, and they're all full of sort of me very much putting myself at the centre of a thing and going like, here am I, who am from here doing this. So in a way that people don't generally do in, in architecture, certainly people don't do that. Um, everyone kind of acts as if they are, you know, all sort of like floating minds, you know, floating above class and Society and so forth, which I think is a way of hiding the fact that they all went to the same schools. Um, but the um, I, so I thought I already did, um, and so I thought it was quite natural doing a kind of anthology of fifteen years of work. Because when I could have came up with it as an idea, I was like, "Oh, there is exactly fifteen years. It goes from two thousand and five to twenty twenty. So there's this exact kind of fifteen year stretch, which seemed very very neat and very symmetrical." I thought, well, I'll obviously kind of do something on like how we got from A to B and how I got from A to B. And I thought it would be fun to just do a kind of like, like the first draft of it, which you know because you've read, um, is basically about like it was an attempt to sort of do a Pevsner guide to everywhere I'd lived and where what was happening in my life at the time. So it sort of had the address of each place and then like a kind of paragraph description and it was rubbish. And you read it and said it was rubbish. My partner said it was rubbish. Lindsay Hanley read it and said it was rubbish. Like everyone said it was shit. My editor said it was shit. So I was like, oh dear, this really, this really hasn't worked. So I sat down again and kind of like just tried to write it out like I would normally write a thing. You know, just like kind of breaking up this attempt to write something vaguely experimental and instead just kind of go, just treat it like a, like, like a normal kind of conversational thing. But. I suppose it's a fragment of something that I've sort of also wanted to do for a while. Um, I've kind of wanted to, 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 to write that, to write about some of these things. Partly, actually, because I find it sort of easier to write about it the further you get away from it. The less, the less those things are, are, are painful, the more it's kind of like, oh, I can, you know, smile about it now. Damn, it was terrible. As, uh, <laughs> as our, our friend from the Northwest once said. And, uh, he is so cancelled. Um, he is extremely cancelled. Um, but, um, but yeah, so, I mean, in a way, it's kind of like writing about poverty. And it's writing about poverty at a time in which poverty was supposed not to exist, but actually was uh, social exclusion, if you remember rightly. I remember social exclusion. But I was very, very keen not to kind of do it about sort of class or identification of class. I mean, it is about class in a way, but I don't, I've never, I never felt when I, you know, when I was working class, I never particularly felt like I was working class. Um, you know, I never particularly felt much kind of like I was sort of particularly at home or, or you know, it was a, my main thing I remember from, from growing up is just a, a, a deep feeling of alienation, which, um, and what was sort of, the, the period that I'm writing about there is a period when I kind of went and kind of hid from my landlord for about two months at my mum's then recently acquired council flat near the in, in Northam estate in Southampton. And it involved kind of looking at this place from which I had felt deeply alienated as uh, as a child and as a teenager and kind of going, actually, this is all right. Actually, this is really quite interesting. And kind of finding something in it which I 
hadn't really realized was there. And I think that thing that I'd found that I hadn't realized was there was the welfare state. Mm-hmm. And was that kind of um, legacy of kind of, you know, very, very strong legacy of kind of social provision and also kind of artistic and architectural provision that that city had had. So it's really kind of about that and about me at a point, at a fairly kind of low point for various reasons, kind of finding that thing um, and it not being coincidental that it's at that point that I started blogging. Um, but in terms of, it, you know, sort of thinking about it in terms of like, you know, autobiographical writing as a genre, I didn't think that much about it. And that's probably why the first draft was so poor. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you, you you rather put words words in my I thought it was quite an interest, uh, interesting experiment. But, um, Which failed. Yeah, I think maybe the, uh, <laughs> the, the the version that's ended up in the book is, is a bit more sort of natural to your type of writing, which I think is why it why it was better and indeed you know that was what kind of attracted me to your to your writing and indeed to your uh, to your twitter presence because i i came to you in about 2011 i think and yeah certainly your your interests your political opinion your just kind of attitude to the world you know really sort of fizzled and sparked out of out of a lot of that writing and when i read um the guide to the new ruins of, of great britain you know the um the sort of combination of talking about the overarching ideology of, of Britain and its politics at different points, ideas in architecture and city and town planning, uh, things like sort of pop culture and pop music in particular, uh, you know, the way you sort of combined all of these things really interested me. And I guess that leads on to the next question I want to ask, which is like, can we talk a bit about how and why you ended up focusing of all your kind of diverse interests, how and why you ended up sort of focusing so much on uh, housing and architecture rather than, say, um, pop music? I mean, the short answer to that is because I didn't have anything to say about music that people weren't already saying better than me. So it was, it was very crowded. You know, I, 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 there were a lot of people doing that. Some our age, some who would later do zero books, like you know, Rian Jones and Alex Niven and so on, and who were just doing you know, Adam Harper and another who were just doing it and were just way better than me and had things to say that I didn't, and so it was just kind of pointless. Um, so you know, if I were to kind of like go through what was in my my, my blogs early on, loads of it was about music. Absolutely loads. Loads of it was about music and loads of it was about film. And most of that doesn't really stand up because of the fact that, you know, I I didn't have much to add that, 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 that you know, that Mark Fisher wasn't already doing, to use a really obvious example. Uh, so I think the sort of process of trying to find out what it is I wanted to do was partly through you know, trying not to do what he was doing because he was already doing it. And in many ways, the kind of book that I, one book I have written about music, which is obviously about, about Pulp, was partly because of the fact that, the, the, because the fact that he didn't like them meant that they were territory that I could then occupy. I could write about them because that, that you know, it was, it was, it was there open that none of the other writers I liked had, had really gone there. And obviously the other thing, as you know, architecture and town planning, and um, I knew much less about that, that. And one can go through, you know, the kind of writing I was doing on that at the time, both in the blog and when I first started getting hired to write, uh, largely through my friend Bat, who at that point was an editor at Socialist Worker, um, and hired various blog adjacent people. I mean, he's left the SWP obviously because you know, obviously everyone's left the SWP who's got any basic human decency. Um, but he, you know, sort of hired me early on. And I think there's about two essays for Socialist Worker on architecture, which are just full of the most schoolboy errors. And he published it because, you know, I gave the appearance of knowing what I was talking about, even though I didn't. Um, so part of the fun of it was that you could then kind of learn about it on the hop. That was actually also mm-hmm. a fun thing to do was to kind of, and you see people doing this on Twitter all the time, you know, often talking with a great kind of like sense of authority about elements of the history or culture which they're actually just learning about there and then and that's good that's a good thing i think that's a, that, that, that's a you know it's a it's and and the, the, the very the very fact that people will then you know either in those days in the comments box or today and you know in the replies will you know suggest other paths for you to, to to explore was really was really good it was really useful to have some people like um robert doyle who posted as lang rabbi 
um, in my comments back in the blog days who would very politely tell me where I was wrong and tell me what I should be reading instead. But the, I suppose the, the, where it comes back to the introduction and the introduction in 2005 is that it was very much an attempt at explaining to myself what had happened there, like what, what this kind of housing estate my mum moved to, which I really liked, how that got there. Um, you know, how the kind of huge quantity of sort of, by sort of exotic brutalism in a very unexotic city like Talenton managed to get built. Um, almost a sort of realization. I remember like, like having this real, like deep realization reading a penguin book, like a penguin history of British architecture, but collected book by four writers from the mid sixties, which I read in 2005. That's one of the first books I read in architecture and just this feeling like, you're allowed to like this. Or rather, there was a time when you were allowed to like them. You know, you had a picture of the Alton Estate in there, in Roehampton, and I was kind of looking at it and being like, I mean, I like this, but like, surely, you know, you like it in a kind of like Ballardian, you know, Brett Anderson lyric kind of like, oh, the dystopia of the concrete towers on the West Way kind of way. And, you know, I, 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 and I realized that if I kind of was honest with myself, I didn't like it as a sort of like, oh, the glamorous dystopia of the shrink wrap tower block you know, kind of animal nitrate way. And I liked it because I just thought it was good. I thought it was good. I thought it was good housing. I liked living in it when I was living in it. And I, 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 I know I liked, I liked those places. And that was a really exciting revelation. And that's why I kind of ended up writing so much about it is because I wanted to understand it for myself, both how it had happened and how it had then come to be so comprehensively demonized because I think that stuff probably in about the mid 2000s was that some sort of nadir of its um, popularity. It was actually just about to be, you know, kind of uh, repopularized um, by various different people as a kind of, you know, form of sort of nostalgic chic. That's not quite where I came into it, although I would be lying if I said that nostalgia wasn't a factor. Sticking with, with music for a moment, uh, one of the specific uh, essays in the book that I'd like you talked about briefly is the one you write on the album uh, England Made Me by uh, Black Box Recorder, Luke Haynes, also known for for the auteurs. And um, you write about this record being a really interesting sort of um, counterpoint to the sort of prevailing political attitudes that were coming through in a lot of British guitar music, particularly English guitar music at that time and particularly you know a lot of the sort of darker sides of um of english uh nationalism in particular coming coming through that record um so can we talk a bit about why you included that particular essay in this anthology and maybe how it speaks to the sort of narrative that runs through uh, the book as a whole i think one one reason i put it in there is because i think it's a wonderful record i was sort of put off a little bit by the fact that that the, the, the man in question was once um, deeply unpleasant to me on Twitter.com, but he does this. That's, that's, that's his thing, is to be a bistral git. But I think that it's, 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 a, you know, it's, it's a fascinating record for just insisting at that time on the sort of small-mindedness and racism and conservatism of suburban England. And there was a time, one of the things that, that I mentioned, and I hadn't even remembered that anyone had said this. Uh, so it was written in 2006. And it mentions, I think, I, I think if I remember rightly, I got this from a Polly Toynbee column, this belief that because of New Labour, who had just, of course, won the 2005 election, although it actually won less votes than the Tories in England, under Michael Howard running an explicitly racist campaign, which you might remember, are you thinking what we're thinking, was the slogan. And it would usually have some sort of like, you know, big slogan about criminals or asylum seekers mm-hmm. or whatever. And then are you thinking what we're thinking? To be fair, um, Labour run an explicitly racist campaign as well. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the thing with but the thing with Labour doing it is that it was always done in that kind of like, as they always do everything, because they're such a success I pay faced. It's always, always done with that kind of heavy heart kind of way. You know, mm, like, yeah, yeah, there's a difference yeah. in like Harriet Harman going like, reluctantly, I think we're going to have to. And, you know, Michael Howard at that point going, send her back. This is, these are different things. You know, they're, 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 there's, a, there's a different, you know, it's like, goes back to the old, you know, the, the, the old thing in, in uh, you know, about the, the difference between, you know, ordinary <laughs> conservatism and fascism. Um, so the, um, 
I feel I've kind of because you've mentioned them, you've you've taken me off the. The, the, I, I've not got out my klaxon. I was, I was, promised, I was promised the klaxon. Yeah. The L word is not to be mentioned. Yeah. Michael Howard. Anyway, so there was this phrase from this Polytonby article about like, oh, Britain has a progressive consensus. You know, everyone now believes in progressive things. You know, we all support you know LGBT rights. We're all anti-racist. We all kind of believe in a mixed economy. Blah 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 blah. And I was like, are you fucking serious? Have you spoken to anyone? You know, like like this was the period in which like. You know, the Daily Mail became the most popular uh, paper in the country. It's around the time when UKIP go from being a sort of joke party to, you know, um, within a few years, you know, winning the Euro elections. You know, it's it's this period where, like, that kind of purple poster starts to appear. The kind of purple UKIP poster starts to starts to appear in places. You know, the tabloids were in this constant kind of, like, screaming pitch about, Focus asylum seekers and Muslim terrorists and, and pedos, um, which strangely never seemed to include, um, you know, the huge quantity of ruling class pedos that we now know. And yeah, all of that was happening. And yet these sort of Guardian type people seem to think that we that we'd kind of like crossed 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 over into this kind of like, you know, sort of fantastic kind of Will Alsop near Barcelona where we were all liberal. And, and one of the things I really like about the album is it's an album from that time going like, no, 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 this is what you are. Like you are still this, which makes it in many ways quite a bleak listen. But I think it, it captures an enormous kind of truth of of that time that I think a huge amount of people, particularly in, in suburban areas in the south, but later as we would learn in you know in much of the rest of the country, really didn't like this and were waiting for their moment to take their revenge. So it was just quite funny looking at it in in 2020 and going like, oh, you can trace a line from this to this. Basically, did you did you at any point reading that back in 2020 imagine how 2006 Owen might have responded if uh, 15 years later you were to tell him that 15 years later Polly Toynbee would be saying that the voters have no excuse for not liking centrism? Yeah. I mean, again, it was kind of not. I'm not really trying to suggest here that we all knew what was going to happen. But we didn't, but. It was pretty obvious that this stuff wasn't actually popular and it wasn't working. And one of the things that sort of um, I, I don't remember the phrase, the phraseology exactly, but there was a particular uh, kind of K-punk riff about like populism that no one actually likes. And I think he was talking specifically about New Labour, but also talking about lots of like crap British TV of that period that you kind of aim for the lowest common denominator and miss. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of that about. There was lots of sort of like talking down to people constantly and the people that you were talking down to just ignoring you altogether. So that was very much a thing that we, we were thinking of. Well, obviously, we didn't see the extent of what was going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I remember the uh, the first iteration of Love Island in, I think, 2005, which uh, was a disastrous flop. And I thought, OK, that's that's the lowest common denomination the Glamour's missed. And, uh, and now here we are. What a world we live in. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Anyway, let's like move the conversation on from that a little bit, um, although this, this does sort of relate. And we've said we're not going to talk about the L word and we shouldn't because it sucks. Um, but one of the sort of narratives I think does get traced through the book and it's in the Black Box um, Recorder article we just talked about is a sort of um, resurgence of far right uh, ideas and politics. And one of the things that's explored in the book is the way that uh, makes a sort of you know, inches back into a sort of mainstream, you know, a lot of sort of complacence of 90s end of history type saying, oh, it'll never come back. And throughout the 2000s and 2010s, most notably in the essay you write about um, architecture in Hungary, uh, but also the essay you write about sort of legacies of German express expressionism um, and the, the German far right, 
you talk about the way architecture, in particular a phrase you use that I picked out, restorative classicism, uh, is a means of sort of um, mainstreaming kind of far-right ideas during during that period. So can we talk a bit about how that comes into into the book and into the specific pieces uh, that are included? Yeah, sure. I mean, I suppose, you know, the, the idea of a sort of resurgence, I mean, I... I suppose you know, I'm very much aware that my sort of perspective on these things, growing up in somewhere that was kind of ultra, ultra politicised to the point of it being slightly ridiculous, means that I, 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 it's probably a bit, a, a, a bit kind of atypical. But you know, I remember going on the demonstration against the BNP when they had their councillor in, in, in the Isle of Dogs march to their headquarters in, in, in Welling in South East London. I remember going on that when I was twelve. You know, I remember like you know the, 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 there was a. Uh, a big resurgence in, in, in street fascism. I remember the estate that I lived on in the mid-90s in the outskirts of Southampton having a major national front presence, not even BNP, national front. I didn't really, I didn't, I, you know, I, I don't think any of that had ever been really dealt with. And by and large, it had been sort of pandered to. Although there was this sort of idea that like, you could sort of do things and pander to it at once, a kind of classic triangulation strategy. But the stuff in the book about Hungary and Germany is a bit different because I don't really want to. I I I think you can and can't compare like you know, Farage and Horthy or like you know, Rod Little Rod Little and Ernst Junger. You know, I mean they're kind of similar and they're kind of not. You know, maybe the the, the Fash had better intellectuals in those days. I don't know. What they're very much about is kind of architecture and nationalism as a kind of alternative to. The sort of modern movement that I very much romanticize, you know, that I think one can nuance this quite a great deal. There are places where there's kind of a tie between modernism and nationalism, um, Italy um, to a degree. But by and large, especially in Germany and in Central Europe in general, there was a very kind of strict divide between, you know, kind of people who were um, doing this kind of international and hence Bolshevik, hence Jewish. Uh, architecture and then people that were trying to you know go down into like the german earth and clay and you know build with the real mobs of germany and you know a lot of that stuff in expressionism deep which was deeply nationalistic didn't really feed into the architecture of the third right very much because hitler had very very boring taste in architecture and this was into a really kind of dull kind of poundbury classicism so um but i was uh, that that comes from uh uh, a, a, a review of a series of books called Fragments of Metropolis, which came out from a sort of, I think, impeccably liberal sort of German architecture publisher. You probably would have no idea of the kind of connotations at the time of this of this stuff. And I was just sort of going through it, just looking up all the architects and all of these kind of expressionist architects who were all designing this kind of very the heavy architecture of brick and spires, this kind of northern Gothic architecture. Loads of them were Nazis. And, you know, there, there, there was very much, it was based on this kind of like, I suppose that, you know we're it's, we're all kind of in the business of trying to find usable past, and I think what this was doing was trying to find a usable past for contemporary German architecture, which is usually a kind of modernised classicism in a lot of cases, something like the kind of um, you know the, the the Humboldt Forum project that's happening right now. It's basically a kind of like basically a kind of 1930s fascist building of an 18th century dome on top. And, you know, that was it was sort of trying to kind of find a usable past for this by finding a, a past for it that wasn't the Nazis, basically. Mm. So it all stops in 1933. And one of the main architects of this who actually introduces one of these books is a guy called Hans Kohlhoff, who recently got in a lot of shit in the German architectural press when it was found that he had inscribed, somehow no one had noticed this up to this point, uh, some verses from Ezra Pound's Cantos in one of his buildings, which was a, a, a neoclassical um, kind of complex in the west of Berlin called Walter Benjamin Platt. So literally dedicated to, you know, a, a Marxist Jewish victim of fascism whose own kind of architectural interests were in kind of iron and glass and but a very, very high tech modernism and sticking, you know, a, building a classical complex based on the kind of solidity and eternal nature of stone and then putting like a, a, an inscription from Ezra Pound talking about usura in there. And I thought this is extraordinary that had gotten away with this. Absolutely extraordinary. Um, and, I, and, you know, in Germany, you have this kind of situation in which, you know, someone supporting BDS is like absolutely an anti-Semite. But someone like literally quoting like one of fascism's main ideologues 
you know, pro propounding a fascist theory on a building dedicated to a victim of fascism was simply not noticed for a very long time. Um, and I think that kind of speaks to a lot of the ways in, w in, in which fascism is sort of remembered. And one of the things that sort of often extricated from how it's discussed is fascism's kind of enormous suspicion of modernity and its enormous hatred of the left. Um, and I think now that you can see, you know, kind of, uh, I think a sort of fascist movement in formation in lots of the world. I don't think it's quite there yet, but it's there. It's kind of forming on, on you know, on the internet and in, and in various political movements. Um, these are two things they absolutely loathe. They absolutely passionately, deeply loathe the left as their primary enemy, and they deeply loathe modernity and particularly modern architecture. Um, well, I mean, so it's sort of interesting seeing those things recur. In that regard. Yeah. And I just want to I want to ask one more question. I'm just a bit conscious of time. I want to ask one more question. It's kind of a counterpoint to that. And I mm -hmm. think it's it's a general point that I'd like to address through a specific essay in the book that really struck me, um, which is, yeah, I mean, you talk about them hating the left. And as a counterpoint to, you know, these these sort of ideas being mainstream, partly through um, architecture, so far right ideas coming in, you also sort of document ways in which architecture and town planning uh, are used as a means of sort of destroying resistance to conservatism and of preventing sort of left-wing cultures forming and erasing ones that already exist. Uh, and so a lot of your writing is a means of um, either protesting or trying to inspire resistance to that or chronicling uh, people who are standing up against it. And one of the most interesting essays here is on a poet and writer and sort of political activist, I guess, called Andrew Jordan, um, who um, was based uh, like yourself on the on the south coast in the sort of Solent region, ran uh, a group uh, which is, I think, maybe just him called Proles for Modernism, <laughs> um, and was very uh, animated by the um, destruction of the uh, really incredible uh, Tricorn Centre in uh, in Portsmouth. So perhaps an audience uh, start putting your questions in the Q&A. But um, before we do that, uh, perhaps you'd like to talk about like, who Andrew Jordan was and uh, why you wrote about him and maybe who commissioned that long essay on Andrew Jordan, because it's a very long piece on a, you know, a very marginal figure. And it struck me, I don't know when it was written, but I don't know how likely it would be to get commissioned now where it might be published. So maybe we could talk a bit about that as well. Mm -hmm. So the essay was originally commissioned by a, 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 a guy called Jonathan Charlie, who's uh, very much an architect, very much from the far left, based in Glasgow, who was doing a kind of anthology in like architecture and literature in the city, a Routledge. And I had wanted to write about Andy's work for a long time. And, he, and so Jonathan asked me to write for this anthology, and I was like, right, this is an opportunity to do this and I, I you know obviously I wasn't going to get paid and no one was really going to read it but that's and that's one reason why it's in this book I just knew that in this Routledge anthology it would be read only by 20 people sorry Jonathan um so I was really keen that um I kind of get it in something that people might actually read so I came across his stuff in Celia Clark's book on the tricorns really wonderful kind of strange picaresque kind of um montage book on, on the Tricorn and the campaign to save it. Not a lot of people know that there was a campaign to save the Tricorn Centre, like well before lots of the modernist revival stuff. And one of the reasons for that was because of the fact that it was a really weird bit of Portsmouth. You know, it was it was kind of the, you know, half of it was derelict, but it's where the kind of, you know, it's where the, the comic shop and the record shop would be in Portsmouth. You know, it was the kind of cool place if you were, if you were cool in Portsmouth. And obviously I'm from, you know, um, the other side of the M27 in Southampton, so I know Portsmouth pretty well. And I kind of like, I guess as I followed his work from there, he, he then kind of, that next thing I came across of his was a um, a book called Bonehead's Utopia, which is about HMP Hasler, which was a migrant holding centre in Gosport, which is roughly speaking Portsmouth's Birkenhead, if you can imagine the, the geography there. Yeah, and I just sort of kind of, I, I guess sort of pedal backwards, sort of, uh, you know, kind of, trying to find all of the things he had read. And he then sent them to me, basically, because I expressed we, we, we started corresponding. Up to that point, the only thing he'd really been in was the Stuart Home anthology called Mind Invaders. And I think that was really the, the, the only way he'd been sort of outside of sort of poetry circles. And he writes this very kind of apocalyptic, kind of, I wouldn't call it Blakeian because that's such a cliche, but writes this kind of very kind of apocalyptic, kind of intense poetry about the 
I, I wouldn't call it South Coast. South Coast is like Sussex. That's the South Coast. Stolen is not the South Coast. Stolen is ports and industry and, you know, and, and military and container ships and, and factories. It's a different thing entirely. And hardly anyone has written properly about it. You know, there was really kind of like Jonathan Meads has done it a little bit. There's uh, Philip Hoare's book Spike Island, which is really good on the, on the Netley Hospital. But really, there's extraordinarily little. Um, and he really kind of explores the place to really enormous kind of like layered layers and layers and layers of the kind of the, the history of it, and particularly in places like Portsdown Hill, which is a, a, a sort of enormous kind of chalk cliff above Portsea Island, um, sort of looming over Portsmouth, which has just been used for you know centuries as a military base, and it's also right next to Paul's Grove. And for another kind of, you know, 2000 nostalgia thing, if people remember the Paul Gro Paul's Grove riot, which is where um, I think a paediatrician had been housed there or something like that. But someone had been housed there and the news of the world revealed their address and there were riots for days and days in Paul's Grove. Um, and, you know, it was a very deeply kind of abandoned place, Paul's Grove. Like, you know, they had all sorts of reasons to be fucking furious. Maybe, maybe the paediatricians weren't really one of them, but... And, and, and his work kind of imagines, I suppose, particularly in, in, his, in his last book, Hegemonic, kind of imagines a sort of uprising of, of the people of that, of that place against his kind of centuries old oppression. And, he, and, and he, you know, he does the kind of thing, I, I think, uh, which I miss people doing, of, of kind of putting out a lots of sort of scenes and pamphlets and so on and, and kind of publishing this kind of very kind of, um, sort of marginal stuff and uh you know i really wanted to kind of um you know point people to it i recently sent him the book and wrote him an email and um and he proceeded to explain to me that um bill gates and tony blair were going to get control of, of my mind and body via the vaccine so he's, you know, he's that kind of dude right um well that seems like a good place to go to questions as long as they're not about like covid vaccine conspiracies um Matthew Letizia I, also an anti-vaxxer it's something in the region it well quite yeah I mean um Craig David's opinions as yet <laughs> um but yeah we we have we have just under 10 minutes for for questions so the only one I've had so far is um just Colin who asked uh, what are your thoughts on class and conservation um uh, that's more of a comment than a question, Colin. I believe. It's, it's a general. It's a very general question. Um, um, do do with it what you will. If yeah, there are any um, essays in the book that refer to it, then I mean there are, and, and the, there are, and they're largely to do with brutalism, conservation. Mm. They're not to do with not to do with sort of you know, more historic historic building conservation, but definitely to do with the way that modern buildings have been conserved. And there's a, a, a really um, it's, it's sort of slightly annoying because I can't point you yet to the essay that I would point you to because we've not published it yet. But the, um, the Tribune culture section, which I which I edit, um, Tess Pinto, later for the 20th Century Society, has sent a fantastic essay about Bologna and about the historic building conservation in Bologna in the 60s and 70s and 80s and how it was deeply linked with class politics. Um, so it wasn't a kind of, you know, we're going to kind of, restore all of these buildings to improve the property values. You know, it was very much kind of like, we're going to do this as a collective project in order to keep ordinary people living in the heart of the city type stuff. And a really rare kind of combination of these two things. And she goes into quite a lot of detail about the way that um, kind of heritage and building restoration funding is, is, is apportioned um, to, to make a case for why it is that, that, that you know, that, that generally building conservation and people whose main interest is, is property development and property values has often gone together. And it's often been a way of removing people from historic buildings and removing one sort of people from historic buildings, whether it's Islington in the 70s or whether it's things like Balfour Tower or Park Hill or Keeling House nowadays, removing them from the historic buildings as a condition seemingly of their conservation. Yeah, there's always been a kind of real um, opposition between those two things, actually. There's been an opposition between the people that live in those buildings and, the, and, and their conservation a lot of the time. And that's not necessary. It's not something inherent to building conservation, but something inherent to in the way it's done in the UK. And there was a recent example of a, a sort of famous brutalist, brutalist social housing complex in Geneva, 
quite similar in many ways to Park Hill and Sheffield, being restored for its original inhabitants. And it's taken 11 years and it's beautiful and nobody was moved out. And, you know, it's entirely possible to do. It's just something inherent in, in the way things are done here. Yeah, we don't have any more from the audience yet. So I'm going to ask a question and again, do with it what you will. Um, the final essay in the book is a long essay about Mark Fisher that I think was uh, originally commissioned um, for a Russian publication by our, our friend Kirill Kobrin, um, mm-hmm. who's, who's a very interesting writer and, and personality. And, you know, after a delay of a few years, you've published this in English at the end of this anthology. Can we talk a bit about why it's it's taken you a few years to to publish that essay and to what extent it is sort of trying to deal with, you know, the influence of, of Mark on that blogging culture that, that yeah, you started sure. off in. Yeah. I mean, I want to be very clear in talking about this. I always feel like I need to do lots of disclaimers about this because I knew him very much at a certain period. Like, you know, we, we, we hadn't been in touch particularly regularly for a good few years when he died. Um, you know, we had been in touch, but certainly not regularly. I mean, we used to be in touch, you know, every couple of days um so it's not really like the argument and it's not really intended to kind of like have a go at other people's interpretations that much with some exceptions on certain essays certain very famous essays where i think everyone's got it wrong i suppose the reason i did it at the time is it it seemed just it seemed very heated very very heated um you know particularly where people stood on the vampire castle essay which is obviously what i'm referring to and I just, yeah, I wanted to kind of, and it was a commission. It was a commission from Kirill for, um, you know, for a Russian journal. And, and, and I did it as a favor to Kirill. And as I, in the course of writing it, I ended up getting a lot off my chest. It's obviously mainly it's a, it's a, it's a tribute to him, but I, I, I wanted to not treat him as a saint. And there is that thing that happens when people die that they are treated as saints. They are, they, they, you know, their flaws are kind of ignored and they're kind of, you know, turned into kind of angelic figures. And I mean, you know, he could sometimes be um, slightly angelic, but, um, you know, he's <laughs> often very much not. Um, so I, I, you know, I wanted to kind of write about, and I, I also wanted to kind of like test the claims that were being made. You know, that, that you, you did see people say when that anthology was published, that this is, you know, the work of the greatest cultural critic of the last 10 or 20 years or whatever. And um, and people would usually mention quite a small group of essays to make that point, make, make reference to quite a small group of texts, which often didn't really do justice to quite how strange and cranky and often just completely irrational and uneven a lot of that work is. So, yeah, there's a sort of element of record straight putting in there. And because of that, I was initially a bit kind of like, give it a bit of time before publishing this anywhere that anyone and Britain can read it. That's some questions. I can see them. Yeah, there's, there's, well, I'm going to ask one more question because I'm uh, aware <laughs> of the time. Abuse and, your chair. You know, yes, I will. But I can see two. Yet. You can see two. Okay, well, I mean. I can see that on two okay, different boxes. No, yeah. Take, well, <laughs> let's, let's take, let's take them both then. Let's take this first one very quickly, which is where next is from Kieran and says, where next for the post-COVID city tour anthology? Would you do a NAN and go uh-huh. America? Uh, I have no particular interest in, in, in going America. There are two projects along those lines. Very glad you are. Um, one of which is quite short and quite silly, um, which I kind of did because it kind of came to me in a dream and then I woke up laughing and I thought, ha, let's do this, um, which is a city tour anthology on the idea of Kanzo, um, the kind of like bizarre kind of Tory right idea that, on leaving the EU, we're going to kind of form a union with uh, with the white dominions. Um, and having been to all three of those countries, having been to Canada, Australia and New Zealand a little bit, um, Australia the least of the three, sadly, I have a sort of essay I wrote, I've kind of been working for ages and ages about New Zealand, which kind of place that I had enormous kind of love-hate feelings towards on, on spending a few weeks there. And it's sort of cobbling them together, basically. And, you know, it's the, it's uh, it's Niall Ferguson's Utopia. Is it real? That's what that book is. And there's a book I've wanted to do for ages and ages and ages as a follow-up to Landscapes of Communism about uh, about East Asia and about sort of developmentalism and Leninism and the links between them and the kind of results in city building 
in East Asia, and that will take years and years and years. None of these involve going to America, unless you count Canada as America, and they've already done. Well, as David Byrne once sang, I wouldn't live there if you paid me. Um, You're quite. <laughs> one, one more question again. The great uh, Satan is not, not being discussed in my work. <laughs> no, me neither. Uh, so this question from Barney, who says, we've got Fried Byrne dying the other day. I got gripped by a maudlin sense of living memory. It sounds like your book is reclaiming your experiences as your own. Is modern housing all in the past? Um, mm, I mean, it has done well in some places. I think it's just the thing of it being, it's the sort of under difficult circumstances. So rare. Like, I, I, I had a really interesting talk recently with them. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My friend Christian Virtualter, who lives in um, Cologne, and we were talking about Dow Grouper. And Dow Grouper are kind of basically a form of, of kind of communal housing that's popular in German cities. Which basically is all of the things I want in housing: your own kind of flat and your own bit and balcony, and then lots of communal areas, and very much in the heart of the city. This is this is how I think everything should be, obviously. And they still do that here and here, uh, still do that there. And here, it's enormously difficult to come by anything. Like that. that 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 stuff is certainly not still still built. You know, a sort of collectively owned, you know, social housing project based on like widespread communal space. This is just not a thing that happens in Britain. It does still happen in Germany, but basically for people that, you know, that already are, you know, that are in the know, um, you know, for, it, it's very popular with sort of aging hipsters. I'm sure, you know, all of the members of Einstein's and Neubauten now live in a bow group or somewhere. You know, it's just like it, it's a thing for a particular kind of group, social group of people. And that idea that this is a thing that you would do for everybody is a thing that really is hard to find being done anywhere. And, you know, neoliberalism is a real thing, whatever the poll profs say, and it's a global thing. Um, and so you do find uh, the most encouraging things I find are always things like that. The Baugruppe in Germany, um, you know, things like the Lilac housing scheme in Leeds, the community land trust there. Um, I, I, you know, th these things are really, um, you know, kind of fascinating and inspiring things, but they are done for a particular group of enthusiasts, you know, and that. That's not going to wash, you know, as the next few decades unfold themselves. It's not going to wash. Well, I think that's all we've got time for. Um, let us not speak of the poll prof. Um, <laughs> Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances, published by Verso, available now. I think we've put a link in the chat where you can buy it from the London Review Bookshop. It looks gorgeous, as always. Uh, it matches Owen's jumper, which I think it is does. a good thing. And the poster. Um, and the poster, quite um, <laughs> wonderful. All right, Owen. Well, uh, thank you so much for um, for joining me. I look forward to uh, your forthcoming non-American work audience. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you all soon. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.